Welcome to the end of the week. Welcome to the news. Uh, we've got a great panel. We've got great topics today. Let me tell you a little bit about the topics first. There is sort of what we call a Papulian through line to some of these topics, and that's good because Irene Papoulis is here, uh, after whom this is named. We're going to begin with a controversy about a song uh, written by a hip-hop artist, performed by a hip-hop artist, uh, eventually assisted by a famous country singer. Uh, but the battle has been over categories, whether or not the song deserved its early place on the country music charts, whether the song can be regarded as authentically country. We'll go from there to another battle about categories. Lucky Lee's uh, is a new restaurant that's opened up in Greenwich Village. Uh, the chef and owner is uh, not Chinese uh, and has caused a stir by claiming that her food is clean, as she puts it. Uh, not oily, not salty, not all these other things that she uh, ascribes to uh, other kinds of Chinese foods. This is feel better Chinese food, as it says, I think, right on the awning. Um, and then uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk about HBO's Barry. Uh, that's Bill Hader's vehicle. It's now two episodes into its second season. Uh, and it's about, as you probably know, a hitman who uh, gets sent on a hit to Hollywood or to, uh, to L.A. anyway and decides that uh, acting is really what he wants to do. Uh, hard to leave the, the hitman life as it turns out. All right. So who's on the panel today? Rand Richards Cooper, a contributing editor at Commonweal, writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is director of development at Covenant Preparatory School. All right. So now – with uh, no further delay. Let's hear, we'll hear the first version. This is, was released earlier this year. Uh, it went on to the country charts. It's by an artist, Little Nas X, uh, and it's called Old Town Road. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the All right, so this was actually released in December of last year. Um, like a lot of music these days, probably particularly in hip-hop, uh, it followed a kind of complicated, circuitous route without the benefit of top management, agent, labels, anything like that, uh, using platforms like SoundCloud and really pushing uh, on a platform called TikTok where people can make their own videos to existing music. And it began to ha have a viral quality. Then it hit uh, the country charts, the Billboard country charts, and then it got taken off the Billboard country charts, although a few st stations continued to play it, which meant that it would sometimes show up on the Billboard country airplay charts. There are a lot of charts. So I guess the first question is, we're, we're going to also in just a second play the more current version, which incorporates the vast talents of Billy Ray Cyrus. Um, but before we even get there, I guess, I guess, Irene, my first question is, I mean, do uh, these categories exist partly for our convenience partly so Billboard will have something to do with itself. I, I, I don't know. We start to wonder, I think, at a certain point whether these categories make any sense. But does it make any sense to have a conversation about whether or not this is a country song? Um, well, every 
topic of conversation probably makes sense. But um, as a com- as a but I think I think it sounds like a country son- song to me. Um, and I and I like it. I have to say that when I first listened to it, I said, oh, "Is this music?" You know, I sort of had one of those. But mm-hmm. then it's so catchy, and I think the themes. You know, a lot of the themes are very country, like the theme of like the man riding off into the sunset, the the wife, you know, cheating on not the wife, cheating on the girlfriend, and but that's okay because that's just what I do because I'm a man and I just have to do. You know, I can't nobody tell me nothing. You right. know, that and, sounds like a country theme. And Lil Nas X, I mean, he in, intentionally incorporated all those themes. He's trying to make a song about cowboys, and Rand's going to have something to say about that in just a second. But you're sort of saying you're invoking kind of a Potter Stewart test, right? Like you don't know how to define country music, but if it sounds like country music to you, that's basically – you know, you know it yeah. when you, when you hear it. Did they give? Did they give? I, I couldn't find figure this out. Did they give categories? I mean, reasons, explicit reasons why they were they, taking it off. They do cite very specific reasons. The reasons don't always make a tremendous amount of sense, but they did offer some kind of basis for this. Uh, and I, I, I can't really say whether this makes sense or not. But Rand, since she mentioned this, I mean, he is, I think, invoking a very specific kind of sub archetype, right? So. You know, categories are um, are useful in in so many ways. My my daughter, who's just turned thirteen, often will uh, play some piece of music from the eighties or nineties, and she'll say, "Dad, what would what would you call this?" And it's in, important for her. She listens to emo. She's a big emo person, but she wants to understand, for instance, some of the cultural and musical antecedents to emo. And in order to do that, it's clear she's establishing this whole system, this classificatory system of different kinds of music. The thing about categories is in addition to being helpful to us, they also demarcate borders uh, and, and territories and then – and along with that then tend to go efforts to defend those, those borders and territories. You are part – you are actually acting on our territory but you are not. That's a transgression. That's crossing word. Now to me – as I said in an email, I don't like country music in particular, and I'm sort of I'm sort of agnostic on on rap, and and so the, neither of these are, are are turfs that I feel the need to defend. I might have other ones that I do, like we talk about. Should Bob Dylan have gotten the Nobel Prize for Literature? You you might find me engaging in a way that would that would that would involve defending a border, but in this case, yes I, or no, I, yes or no, no, n- no, yeah, okay, um, go but on. but I. Um, but I actually like uh, Lil Nas X's um, production here more than I tend to like the typical thing I find in either of those categories. So for me, the way he blends and blurs ends up being a being a being a plus. It's a kind of alchemy that you know t- turns these categories into into something glimmering. I like it. Do right. you like it as as country though? Like, do you feel yeah, like so? I like it in a way that, that I, I don't have to ask myself that that question, okay. or or, I, or even say, well, if this is country, I guess maybe I like some things about country more than I thought. And he helped me see that. But couldn't I mean these categories can also be restrictive and stifling to not only listeners and consumers, but because you can sit there and go, well, oh, you call that rap or you call that jazz? I don't like that because I have these preconceived notions of it. And also to creativity itself because you're trying to make a living perhaps and you want to sort of cater to what the studios are going to like, what the consumers who do sort of confine themselves to their specific categories like. You know, the country music fans, I have friends who are, I am not, but they're very dedicated to their country music. They're very passionate about it and, you know, sometimes I think are are – uh, they're a breed unto themselves in the way that they are 
in love with that type of music. So I can understand where they see it transgressive that this, you know, interloper comes in. And there there are some subtleties there um, in, in sort of how and who is being pushed out of it. But I think the categories themselves tend to be just not helpful when it comes to what could be produced or what could be appreciated by Yeah, folks. and by whom. I right. mean, they're also, in some of the pieces we read, mentioned this. You know, there's the question, he's a black artist. What's what's the role of, mm-hmm. a, of, a, of a black artist um, in in country music? I mean, is there some way and uh, that... that that he's being thrown off the billboard because well this isn't this isn't country music this is not country music and and there's a sort of dog whistle to country music being white. This I don't isn't know. your place. Although there there are <laughs> dating all the way back to Charlie Pride, there are black country artists. Uh, we profiled and interviewed one on a country music show we did last year, Priscilla Renee, who's amazing. Um, but but yes, I th- I don't know that you can't be black and be country, but if you're going to be black and be country, you're going to have to bow down to some of the conventions and motifs and idioms. One thing that I'd like to just sort of say is, so you know, to your point about defending borders, uh, I was sent uh, an article from a blog called Saving Country Music uh, that did not take the side of Lil Nas X uh, and at one point referred to uh, Old Town Road as a song in quotation marks, uh, which is a way of saying kind of as, as Irene started out, what's this? Is this even a song? Is this even music. What intrigued me about that is that's very much the reductive way that country music has often been treated, right? It's stupid. It's repetitious. Anybody could write one of those songs. They use the same chord structure over and over again. I mean, that's exactly the way that country music is demonized and dismissed by people who want to dismiss it. And in a way, hip-hop Rap and rap and country are kind of similar uh, in the sense that sometimes it's not so much the musical pattern that's important, although obviously with Kendrick Lamar and people like that, I mean, a lot of hip hop artists are musically sophisticated, so are a lot of country artists, but it's more that. Um, something is set up in order for the artist to say something uh, very funny or amusing. So I'm going to play a, an old, old country song, which my staff will tell you I often sing to them on Friday afternoons when I'm just really ready for this week to end. Um, but it's by Porter Wagner. Uh, and I think it, it makes this point. It's going to sound like your typical country song, but you, know, you have to kind of listen to what he's saying. It, later in the uh, song, there are lyrics like, there's so much more between us than this table. Um, and at one point, he's, he's talking about her new love. And he goes, no, I don't think I'll have time to see her picture. So, you know, there's this kind of wry humor about a failed love affair. It's a very typical twangy kind of semi-annoying, you know, classic cliche-ridden piece of music. But he's using it to express 
something a lot more interesting. And I really do sing this in the newsroom. I've, I've enjoyed as much of this as I can stand when I consider the week to be over on Fridays. And I think hip hop can be hip hop can be a little bit like that too. I'm I'm not surprised that Coolio and Nelly and people like that are working with Tim McGraw and you know I, I, Brad Paisley and people like this. I, it doesn't surprise me at all. They're very similar. Oh yeah, and Wolfie wants to point out uh, the thing about Beyonce. Before we get to Beyonce, I want to have the panel also just comment a little bit on the Billy Ray Cyrus version. So what little nod Nas X eventually did was he got Billy Ray Cyrus to sing on a different version. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black. Got the boosters black to match. Riding on a horse. So... Tracy with Fasterberg, I feel like the debate's over now. I mean, how is that? But, but, but then that's weird. If the debate's over because suddenly a white country singer is singing the same words, maybe I, I'm as racially blind as everybody I'm criticizing. <laughs> I think that I actually prefer the original version better. I thought it was a little more fun, um, but that's my personal preference. And yes, I think that if, if listening to somebody heard that first and they were like, oh, this is a great country song, and then heard the Lil Nas version, it was... I think right there that tell that does say everything that we need to know. I think that there's probably um, little Nas's race is a a huge part of why there is so much pushback um, because he is not your traditional um, cowboy cowboy country singer, and he's not subscribing to the country way of doing things. Um, and I think that race probably does have a big part of that, even though there are black country artists. Mm. But I, and I think he's also extending, you know, in a way he's doing country a favor by saying, you know, there's something stale about country, maybe, but let's open it up. Let's let's bring it. Let's 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 diversify it, you know, which is what's happening with funny lyric, with different kinds of lyrics, with different kinds of singers, you know, with different kinds of influences. And that's what's happening everywhere, isn't it? Mm -hmm. These days, like, just, it's especially, not that the genre is going to fall apart, but the right. genre is going to get enhanced. Especially because I think he's, he's like 20 years old, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the pieces that, that you sent around uh, talked about him less as a, as a musician than as a child of, of the internet. And there's this, there's an unstoppable and fundamental sort of cutting and pasting, fiddling around, mashup that's so fundamental to uh, the way that you you grow up with the internet. It's it's a it, it's going to yield uh, conflating and 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 blurring um, uh, artifacts, and that that's what's going on here. But I also think you know I don't know if any of this was conscious with him, but about three or four years ago, I I, I saw an exhibit at the Studio Museum of Harlem called uh, the Black cowboy and it was uh, a set of photographs by different photographers that um, that portrayed the experiences of African Americans in in rural settings that are not often associated with them in the popular imagination it made the point that half of the cowhands in Texas in 1880 were were African American that, that's something that most people don't know if you go on and just google Studio Museum of Harlem uh, black cowboy. You will see there are photos of of, of renowned um, uh, black sheriffs of of the 19th century. So so there's a way in which um, and the the woman that that I was writing about a, um, a MacArthur winning curator named Kelly Jones who teaches at at Columbia has made her career in part out of um, sort of reestablishing putting putting in 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 these cultural spaces of 
of emptied memory, putting uh, um, cultural artifacts created by African Americans and other excluded artists. And there's a way in which Lil Nas X's thing, I think, plays you know really very nicely into that 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 kind of project. It's another reason I liked it. All right, so we probably have to segue into our next thing, but uh, I would just once again like to point out, and we're going to play a Beyonce tune that was also, I think, denied a chance to compete for a country Grammy. Uh, but I mean, really, you know, since Tim McGraw and uh, was it Nelly who who did over and over, yeah, Tim Tim McGraw and Nelly, I don't know, like a decade ago, mm-hmm. teamed up to do a song called Over and Over. I mean, I sort of thought this whole thing was. Over, I, I guess. <laughs> this whole conversation was over. And certainly if you go to see a Lyle Lovett show, you will see all kinds of black musical idioms. I don't think people question – and black singers and gospel trios and stuff. I don't think anybody questions whether Lyle Lovett's a country singer. Anyway, um, so Beyonce hit her problems. Let's uh, sort of do a little break between our two topics by playing the song that uh, they wouldn't allow at the country granny category. <laughs> And as a result of that, Beyonce has only 143 Grammys now because she was not <laughs> allowed to compete. And by the way, Lil Nas X has the number one song in the country right now. So don't cry too many tears. <laughs> he's completely won this game. It's um, very catchy. Yeah, he's uh, Old Town Road is the number one song in America right now. So uh, no harm, no foul, maybe. All right, well, there may have been harms and fouls in our next topic. Uh, that is Lucky Lee's Restaurant. Uh, it's in somewhere in Greenwich Village. Have you figured out where it is? I mean, every time I try to look that up, I just get directed to all, to all kinds of sites about the controversy. But um, it's somewhere in the West Village, and uh, it has opened. Uh, it has been it is being opened by a, a chef who is not Chinese uh, and who is promoting it in a very specific way, promoting it as what she calls clean. Um, by which she means uh, no gluten, no MSG, no salt, less oil, a whole bunch of things like that, uh, and that it doesn't make you feel bloat, bloated and icky when you're done. Uh, so I, we got to get let Tracy Fastenberg uh, go first on this. And, uh, you have about uh, 30 minutes left. The show goes <laughs> off the air. So, uh. well, let me let me preface this that I actually don't have any problem with non-Chinese folks cooking Chinese food. I really don't. I've shared my recipes with tons of friends, particularly dumpling recipes because they're fun to make at home and that type of thing. So this doesn't come from a place of, you know, only Chinese people can cook Chinese food. I think um, I have very strong feelings about this for multiple reasons. Um, One, because Chinese food and, and ethnic food, if you will, has often been demonized by folks as being weird or different or, you know, you must eat cat or dog or all these sort of stereotypes and tropes um, where it's like, oh, that's gross. Um, You know, Chinese kids or Asian kids um, bringing traditional lunches to school were made fun of because it was whatever. And so there's that that sort of hangs heavy over Chinese culture. Um, And then there's sort of the idea that Americanized Chinese food is actual Chinese food. Um, The fact that what you get at your takeout restaurant is an Americanized version. It's customized for the Americanized palate, a little sweeter, not as spicy, um, a little creamier, like a crab rangoon with dairy is definitely not something that I ever had as a child. Now, I'm not saying it's not delicious because it's fried in cheese, but, um, you know, so so there's that whole part of it um, that this 
woman is playing on. Uh, she's a white woman. She's married to a white man. Lee is her husband. Um, it's not uh, a Lee that is Chinese. Um, and to advertise it as being clean and you won't feel heavy and gross and we don't use this, that, and the other thing. And one thing she lists is butter. And I will tell you, Chinese food does not traditionally use butter. We don't use much dairy in our cooking. Um, so that right there tells me she actually doesn't know anything about actual Chinese food. Um, and so in doing that and profiting off of it and sort of denigrating something that was created for this market, um, for Chinese folks to make a living, um, really burns me in a lot of different ways. Um, and if you sort of look at her profile, she's she's sort of a... She's a, a health coach, there parent, you go. parenting blogger, and designer of the I Love Me Jewelry connection, Collection. The I Love Me Jewelry I love Collection. Me. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure she loves herself uh, too. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that just the whole idea of it and the way she's gone about it is incredibly disrespectful. Um, you know, again, I have no problem with folks who respect the culture and learn as so long as they are educating themselves and compensating folks for their education, particularly when it comes to a marginalized culture. Um, but the way she went about it is really just sort of gross. Although the internet lashback has been a lot of fun in certain ways where I think people sort of understand where the problem comes in. Um, you know, obviously she has her her supporters who are defending her, but it's been sort of heartening to see that people understand where she made her giant missteps. Let's go to the restaurant critic next. Uh, we have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so she's a pretty easy target because she seems both fairly ignorant of and, and also in some ways condescending to the cuisine that, she's, that she wants to purvey. Um, and, and so the use of really hackneyed uh, image uh, iconography – um, to decorate her, I mean, do we really need bamboo? Uh, you know, at this point in a Chinese restaurant, and the the notion that so-called brown sauce defines the the uh, the Chinese cuisine that you get. I mean, this is not 1963, so um, so that's a problem. But the, and it also makes her an easy target. But there really is an underlying issue, and that explains a lot of the pushback against her. That's not merely because. She, she's kind of a ridiculous figure. It has to do with the issue of cultural appropriation itself. Um, and, and that is whether um, certain experiences, artistic modes, cuisines, hairstyles, clothing are proprietary um, realities that belong to a certain group. And anyone who, who crosses that boundary to bring in the boundaries again and participates in those even if they're doing it in a in a less disrespectful way than this woman, is 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 committing some sort of improper action, um, and and that becomes a lot less. Wait a minute, clear. you think it's improper? No, well, so to, to cross the boundary. You're familiar, of course. You teach yeah. at college with cultural appropriation, which mm -hmm. is defined as the theft and exploitative use of cultural elements such as hairstyle, attires. I'm reading from the Amherst College Guide. Uh, symbols, language, or art attire for profit or commodification without understanding or respect for the value in the original culture. I but didn't that, know that so without understanding was contained in that phrase. But the, and the last part of it is kind of key, right? Yeah. That like, it's possible to do yeah. it respectfully. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's 
you know, 10,000 restaurants in America that are run by so-and-so who spent a year abroad in such-and-such a country and fell in love with their cuisine and came back and wanted to help introduce it to America, you know? And I mean, I think that's sort of, I mean, as long as you really mean it, I think it's legit. Well, the, the, the sort of high concept I, examples is tend to do with like someone who has a, you know, Katy Perry dresses as a geisha for the uh, Music okay. Awards. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, it's Justin, under, Justin Trudeau yeah. dresses his family and they go to India and they come back, you know, for, wearing all this stuff. You look yeah. at somebody like Andrew Zimmern, who is incredibly well-traveled, well-studied, everything, yet still had the audacity to say he was opening a Chinese restaurant because the market he was opening it in, the Chinese food was trash. The Midwest. The, yes. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think in that right there, I think you've got a huge problem. So I think that definition is actually pretty good in, fact, in the fact of for exploiting, for profit, and also the denigrating of it. And, and But I also think that the education part is important, that the education should come from the source because there are so many people who say, well, I read about it. Oh, right. I, I took the time to read about it. Well, who wrote that book you, you right. read about? Did you actually discuss it with somebody? Did you understand the nuances and the depth of it? And I think that there, it's a case-by-case basis oftentimes. Well, so, so, right, we, so we haven't, heard, we haven't heard from Irene yet. The thing that struck me about the article is um, she said, quote, when we talk about our food, we're not talking about other restaurants. We're only talking about Lucky Lee's. And to me, that's the problem right there. It's sort of like I'm going to take what I imagine as Chinese food and use it but I'm only talking about my restaurant. Well, you can't do that because you're calling it Chinese food. If you want to call it, you know, the blue bonnet, great. You know, but if you're calling it Chinese food, you can't just say, oh, I'm not talking about them because you are talking about them and people right. hear you talking about them and using a certain kind of tradition. of It's sort of like the genre in a way of country, country you know, you're using country music in some way. You're using Chinese food in some way. I don't know if there's a connection there, but I think there sort of is. And I think that you're absolutely right because in her way of describing her, her very special tiny little box of food, she's using... Chinese food as her reference point and yes. then knocking it down, you know, so you, you can't just talk about yours because you're also making making fun of, you know, do you feel bloated and gross and whatever after eating this other stuff, you know, and so, I so think you are talking about yeah, other you other are talking about it. So yeah. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So. But, you know, okay, so Scarlett Johansson was cast to play a, a transgender man in, in a movie uh, and there was there was uh, an uproar. Uh, about she's also this. cast to play an Asian too, and right, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's she's a good actor. I I don't doubt that if she had played the role of the trans uh, trans person, that she would have done a good a good job of it. But um, a typical comment in in the uproar that greeted that was was from Trace Lysette, who's a who's a, a trans actress from Transparent, and she said. Speaking about cisgendered people uh, uh, who take these roles, not only do you play us and steal our narrative and our opportunity, but you pat yourselves on the back with trophies and accolades for mimicking what we have lived. So I, I think it's important to focus on that, not just an embarrassing and insulting person mm-hmm. like you know this 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 restaurateur, um, but but you know someone like in 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 the Scarlett Johansson case. Um, the, the the stealing our narrative trope is a really powerful one, and and there are there are good reasons for that. How how do we frame issues of identity, and and who gets to frame them? Who owns the story? This has both sort of sort of industry. It's like you know, you exclude us from from acting jobs, and then you're going to take mm-hmm. the roles for us as well. Right, but I think it's hard to extend that to food. You know, I mean, f- to food, it's a little bit different. I mean, as I said, I. 
I want a Chinese person to be able to cook Jewish food. I want a Jewish person to be able to cook Chinese food. Uh, Ran, you and I know uh, an Albanian guy who runs ter- a terrific French restaurant uh, <laughs> in West Harvard Center, a terrific Italian restaurant in West Harvard Center, and I'm told I haven't been there yet, a terrific Middle Eastern uh, restaurant. There, you know, food is a little bit more fungible and transferable. Right. There's a sense that you can master somebody's cuisine. I just want I don't know where it fits into this, but there's a really another, another part of this, which is that foodies – a category in which I like halfway place myself are constantly seeking authenticity, right? That's like authenticity is a big thing. And like I find, and my son is ethnically Mexican, like I don't really want to go to a Mexican restaurant that isn't run by Mexican people. And so, you know, we go to Monte Alban and actually we just discovered this place called Ocho Cafe over at Bishop's Corner, which looks like a chain restaurant or something, but it's not. And it's terrific. And there seem to be just all Mexican people running it and working it. But like what's that all about really when you get down to it? I think there's also a piece of this when you talk about the authenticity piece and also the, you know, an Albanian running a French restaurant. There is the marginalization uh, Mm. aspect of it. Um, You know, a lot of ethnic certain foods are called gross or weird or whatever. And I think that when uh, it's generally called that and then somebody wants to profit off it or or take it and make it and and, uh, in some ways bastardize it, um, that's insulting and and. I think when you have groups, Latinos or Asians or some soul food for, for black folks, where it's, it is taken, then there is that sort of systemic oppression that happens, too, because, you know, you've got that. This is, these are marginalized folks trying to make a living. I mean, mm-hmm. Chinese restaurants came about in, in the way that they have because Chinese folks could not get jobs they were excluded from certain kinds of labor. So mm-hmm. that's why they wound up running the laundries and, and opening Chinese restaurants and modifying those tastes to Americanized tastes because that was the only way they could make a living following the Chinese Exclusion Act. So there's a history there. There's there's that history of oppression. And, and so, you know, then you've got folks that are possibly Latino or black that may not be able to raise themselves up through other careers. And so they may open a restaurant. So I think you also have that dynamic well, it's hard to that's apply different. That into French and Italian restaurants. That's, what, that's yeah. my whole point is and, that yeah. it's marginalized cultures versus maybe not as well, much. Well, then you have to sort of decide who's marginalized at this point, you know. And I think that's, that's complicated too. I would quickly point out that most of the Indian restaurants in New York City for a long, long time were run by Bangladeshi people because that's like who got into the market. You know, nobody knew. Everybody just, well, that's Indian food. So I, I don't know. It's, 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 we don't have time to keep talking about it, although I'd love to keep talking about it. It's an interesting topic. But you but said I had half an hour. We've got to leave room for Barry or he'll shoot us. we got to go. <laughs> All right. The HBO series Barry uh, has been launched uh, a year ago. Uh, It ran through an eight-episode season. The episodes are very short, or at least they're about a half an hour. Uh, And it is the tale uh, of a hitman named Barry who who was managed by sort of a Fagin-like character named Fuchs uh, and (laughs) managed very exploitively. Uh, And he comes to uh, Los Angeles and he's supposed to assassinate somebody at at an acting class. And he kind of gets sucked into the world of acting. It's Bill Hader uh, as Barry. Uh, let's hear uh, a clip. Uh, this is uh, Noho Hank. You have to know who Noho Hank is. So Noho Hank is a uh, Chechen mobster, I guess, but he's uh, also this kind of sprite-like uh, cheerful enthusiast who's just wild about Barry and wild about all kinds of thing uh, in America, all kinds of things in America, uh, and he has sent a bullet to some people that he doesn't like and. He- He's very proud of himself for having used DHL delivery. What are you doing? How are you? What am I doing? 
I'm set up to kill Paco like you asked me to. What do you mean, what am I doing? Oh, right, duh. Um, here's the thing. I need you to wait, Barry. Just a little bit longer for my signal. Wait? For what? Wait, what? What, what signal? Why? Because we sent bullet to the Bolivians. You sent a bullet to the Bolivians? What, like in the mail? DHL. It's actually really cool. So, Paco is our informant within the Bolivians. We tell him, trust us. Tell us everything you know. He tell us. Because he is stupid. And now we have to kill him before he tell other people he tell us. Okay, what does it have to do with mailing a bullet? See, this way, we send a message to the Bolivians. Get inside their heads. They open mail. Bullet. What? Phone rings. Hello? Paco's dead? What? Little what leads to big what for full effect. Hank, you can't do this to me right now, all right? I'm fully exposed here. I gotta do this now, all right? I gotta do it right now. Well, when I get DHL confirmation from www.dhl.com, all right? That's when you kill Paco. So can you be a bro for me, please? Wait for a high sign. Hank, I got a clear shot of Paco right now. I'm taking, I'm not waiting for some bullet. I'd rather you did though. All right, that's uh, Anthony Kerrigan, uh, who is just chewing up scenery uh, in the role of NoHo Hank. So I just maybe just go around the table, kind of take the temperature of everybody, see uh, how this series is landing with them. It is at times extremely funny, as I think you can probably tell, and it is also unbelievably dark. So Tracy Wu Fastenberg, where are you on this? I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I had seen, you know, sort of the the teasers for it, you know, a year ago or so, and then you had shared an article a couple weeks ago. Um, about sort of the the start of uh, season two, and that had me very intrigued as they sort of went went through it. And I think it was the New Yorker article. New Yorker, yeah. um, and so watching it, I actually started on season two because I wasn't sure if I'd get through the whole season before this show, um, and started with episodes one and two, and those hooked me enough to start it from the beginning and just plow right through. Um, I mean, there, there's some some aspects of it that I don't love, but for the most part, I found it incredibly entertaining and sort of, um, while it's considered a comedy, it, it's sort of like not your, you know, fit in your category box um, thing, as like we were talking about with mm-hmm. the Old Town Road. All right. Uh, Irene Pavoulis. Um Yeah, there's something about the stereotyping that really put me off. And there's also something about the idea of a serial killer as a hero that also put me off, especially in this day, you know, even though I know it's a metaphor, I kept saying, it's like, okay, if it's a, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor, but he actually is killing people. But, um, but the, the, the woman's, the girlfriend's perspective is so funny that it just makes me hysterical. There's so much that makes me hysterical about her. This is a character named Sally who's played by Sarah Goldberg. She's in the acting class, uh, is constantly pursuing contacts with agents, uh, and sort of having a relationship with Barry, right? Yeah, and I just, you know, of course, the, you know, as a woman looking at it, I identify sort of with her, and I just think it's so funny, the things they're critiquing with her, but yeah, so I like it. All right, uh, Rand? So I like the show a lot. I watched all the episodes very quickly. I was glad to add a, a comedy to my list of favorite shows because there aren't a lot of comedies on it. I, I like thinking about the antecedents too and the influences on this show, which to me include The, the Sopranos, uh, perhaps that uh, show Dexter. Um, mm-hmm. th- there was a movie with Pierce Brosnan where he played a, a, a bummed out, played out hitman called The Matador. That that film was underappreciated. It was terrific. Also, Pritzi's Honor. And Pritzi's Honor, and I and I think about the Americans as well. But um, but the most obvious one to me is Breaking Bad, and I I sort of think of Barry as in many ways Breaking Bad stood on its head. 
um, we, we see with Breaking Bad, it's a sort of moral and psychological experiment. You take a nerd and then you take away all moral constraints and, and through a careful plotting, you bring him into this Shakespearean darkness. And the question is, what would we all become if all moral and ethical constraints were taken off us? Barry is the opposite way. Um, it's, it starts with, with mayhem and evil already in place. The very first scene, he shows the casual aftermath of, of a killing. But Barry has it within him an, an inner nerd. So the process of this show, the opposite of what happens with Walter White, is sort of what is the process, the sort of the therapeutic process, but delivered via Henry Winkler as his, as his uh, acting coach, by which the inner nerd is, is perhaps going to be liberated and be able to conquer you know, the, the, the monstrous person that he has become. Now, the last thing I'll say about that is if you read the summaries of, of as I went back and did, of all the episodes, there's so much dark stuff, people being strangled, people with the Americans, the dark stuff is right in your face and, and sort of making sense of the dark stuff vis-a-vis the characters wish for normalcy is the challenge of that show. But when this show, I, I sort of disregard the dark stuff and I, I just think of it as a, as a funny, absurdist show. And it's interesting to me that my impulse is to just shear off the, the, the dark stuff. Colin, you mentioned in your email that there is also the Shakespearean uh, you know, dimension of who are you? What is it? And so I don't know. I guess we need to talk about it. is there something serious here? I'm tended to take this as just a perfect touch absurdist comedy. I struggle with that a lot too. You know, what's going on in the writing room? What kinds of conversations? There is a little sort of uh, behind the scenes thing at the end of every episode where you do get to hear some of the conversations at the writing room. But I was intrigued by the fact that there's one scene that does involve uh, in a very, very um, serious way Macbeth and also a very funny way Macbeth. Um, in fact, Sally is playing Macbeth. Uh, and and to me, you know, I thought about Macbeth during the Obama years a lot because he was this constitutional scholar, obviously kind of a decent and principled man. But Guantanamo was still open. We were engaged in you know, record numbers of extrajudicial ex- executions and drone strikes, mass deportations, uh, and and persecu- prosecution of the press uh, until he got called on that. He had more prosecutions of the press going than any president before him. I mean, there were so many ways in which who he was seemed to be a violation of who he thought he was. And that's very much, to me, the question of Macbeth is, was I always this way or did I get turned into this by a series uh, of events? And I think that's one of the things that Barry's struggling with too. Am I just this way? Am I evil? Am I an irredeemable monster? Or is there some way to claw out of this question? Um, And I also feel as though, and I want to turn it back to you guys, one of the really interesting things about this is the degree to which early in the show, Barry is very, very comfortable killing people. Uh, he's in his element. He's calm. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to get from point A to point Z. He's fine. When he is terrified is when he has asked real questions about himself, who he is, what he feels, what he thinks, all the things that Henry Winkler's character wants to pull out of him uh, in this acting class. That's what's terrifying to him. And I think there is a sense in our real lives, that real, real question of who are you, it's kind of scary to all of us. All right. Who Back to you. Yeah, well, when they, and when they have his backstory about, or you know, he tells it, but they dramatize yes. it of how he, you know, the first time he killed someone. That is kind of a hilarious nerd story because, he, I, I, you know, without to, without giving any spoilers, you know, it's kind of interesting to think. Oh, okay, so that explains <laughs> that explains it. You know, mm. um, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. But. I love the detail in the show, actually, all the little subtle things that sort of uh, tell you more about everything. You know, his bedroom in that very first scene when he returns home, you know, you you see this, you know, as, as Rand said, the first scene is he's just completed a hit. And so you're like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a hit man. And then you go in and it's like 
there's like a Metallica poster on the wall and it's just sort of like dingy as if you've just walked into like some 21 year old's place and clearly he's not. Um, then he's in another apartment and I just noticed like uh, it went perfectly along with the character. The toilet seat was up, the poster that was on the wall, like all these tiny little things that you don't, I don't always notice the scenery because you're, you're so focused on maybe a great acting performance, but they took the time for all of these funny little things that sort of give chuckles along the way. And the supporting performances oh, yeah. are, yeah. they're just phenomenal. They're just pitch perfect. The, the one we heard from, I think his name is Anthony Carrigan, who plays Noho Hank. Um, and, and, t- even though maybe one shouldn't try to figure out why something is funny, that's often a deadly endeavor. He is so funny, and you you can't. It's there are multiple components to the the genius of of his portrayal. The one we just heard, the fact that he's now clued into it's DHL. It's not just any delivery service, it, and he's gonna you know www.dhl. So there's this way in which the things that are going that are being planned are the the gravest, most morally, literally lethal kinds of actions. But but they are they get lost in and enchanted by all these procedural details and one you know one one way the absurdism of this works is it constantly substitutes for any any kind of <laughs> ethical gravitas all of this flamboyant and uh, enjoyable uh, preoccupation with with doing it according to a certain script. Right. I mean, yeah. I, to me, this reaches its zenith uh, towards the end of the first season when this Bolivian drug lord, who I think is going to turn out to be an unparalleled monster ultimately, but he shows up and it turns out to be this super nice, as Hank says, guy, and and he's uh, in, very much in the thrall of this book, The Four Agreements. The Four <laughs> Agreements is you know this sort of Latin American mystical self help book that, in fact, I'm sure is being passed around Hollywood a lot these days in Greater Los Angeles. <laughs> As well, and that kind of you know they they discuss this. It turns out I think that Hank is also reading the the four agreements because he's familiar he, with it. Yeah. Right, that's like no no no, that's yeah. not the third one. That's right, yeah. the fourth. Exactly. One. <laughs> yeah. So they, they but they all know about that. And then by the beginning of the second season, Don Cristobal w- wants everybody to read Thomas Friedman, which was sort of and, and at one point Hank says, you know, you've given us a lot of books. <laughs> And, and the parallel character in Breaking Bad is a figure of of, of uh, unlimited menace, um, and 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 uh, you know the guy who shows up and and, and eventually you know, Walter has to kill him. The guy is a brute, um, a horrible brute. And so it's as if they're following that show, but at every turn they turn it toward unexpected absurdity. Right. I, I laughed more at the show than I've laughed at a show in a long time. All right, Barry. So uh, that's all we have time for. We've got to take a break. Come back and endorse a few things. Today's show was produced by the Mejiasaurus, Carlos Mejia, and me, Kion Wolf, Betsy Kaplan, a team of Chechen-Bolivian hitmen, a squad of Jewish-Chinese cooks, and a band of country hip-hop artists. Amanda Fish hid in a closet so she didn't get turned into a general Sal's gefilte fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tim McGraw and Coolio. On Monday's show, we offer up an old favorite because Colin has jury duty. And now... Back to Colin. Yes, I think we're going to rerun our profile of the new uh, Chief Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court, who has lots of interesting stuff about um, uh, about his martial arts career and about uh, things he can play on the electric guitar. He's not your he's not 
John Roberts. Let's just say that. Uh, so it's time to do some endorsements. We've got Rand Richards Cooper, Irene Papoulis, Tracy Wu Fastenberg here. Rand, why don't you go first? So in, in the spirit of culinary appropriation, uh, I'm going to recommend and a visiting downtown Hartford, two places down there, El Pollo Guapo, the handsome chicken, which is two Americans of German descent, I believe, doing sort of Mexican Spanish-ish food. It's a great place to go for for. For ch- it's essentially a chicken shack, but with a lot of other dishes. And around the corner, Blind Pig Pizza, which is uh, Jamie the Bear McDonald's, essentially takes all his barbecue and puts it on flatbreads and calls it pizza. That's great. I also would like to recommend the show currently at Theater Works, which has another couple of weeks run. It's called Girlfriend. It's a two-person show about two uh, kids in the summer between high school and college. And it's based on a bunch of songs that Matthew Sweet did in the 1990s, so Girlfriend at Theater Works. Irene Papoulos. Um, well, I guess I, I'm going to in- um, endorse Killing Eve, which is another sh- TV show about a serial killer who's a woman, and it's not exactly a comedy, though there are some sort of funny things about it. Uh, but it's And it's edgy in a way that is supposed to be edgy and kind of interesting, and Sandra Oh is the lead, and she's so good. In it, and but also the black hole scientists. You know, it's so I just love the black hole, and and you know there was this woman that was getting all this credit yesterday for having been sort of leading the team, and then there were all these men on Reddit who said, no, it couldn't have been her. It must have been this other guy, and they pointed to some other scientist. But then that other scientist came out and said, no, it was her. She really (laughs) did have, but it was the whole team, but she had a really important role. But it's just like such an incredible story that I just feel like we should should just have to honor the fact they've been working on this for years, and this thing is 55 million light years away. It takes one second to get to to China for their light, you know? So 55, how long would it go? Where far would it go in 55 million years? We can't even imagine it. But yet they figured out a way to take a photograph with four different telescopes. And it's just, I just think we should we should applaud them. Well, I do hope people will listen to the show that we did this past Wednesday, oh, which, did, was, which was about the role of women scientists and how they often take, don't get credit for things, including people like Vera Rubin, an amazing astronomer who should have won the Nobel Prize uh, and did not. And then listen next Wednesday when my panel, which includes the helioseismologist, woman, professor, uh, astronomy chair at Yale, um, uh, Sarbani Basu, uh, discusses uh, astronomy in general. We'll talk a little bit about that black hole photograph, although when we were doing it, it hadn't been taken yet. But that's very quantum, too. There's one it hadn't, been, ga- released, hadn't been released yet. Yeah, okay. Um, I have to endorse a little something bakery in uh, in West Hartford, Hartford Line. Um, it was about a month and a half ago, but she did some amazing cupcakes for my daughter's birthday, a great carrot cake for my husband's. She was really nice to work with. Um, I think, you know, people are always looking for a, a nice sort of custom baker. Where is it? Um, Where is it's it? right uh, sort of near that, that park was it the Park River Brewing Company? Yeah. Um, sort of in back there um, near the Home Depot area. Um, she's just got like a little adorable oh, studio right, and it's right, all right. all custom stuff. But it was delicious and she was really sweet to work for or work with. Um, and the other one is uh, a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me. Uh, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is on Netflix um, on in a second season. It was just released. It's a darker take on that Sabrina the Teenage Witch Archie comics. Um, but it's surprisingly, while it's absurd because it has to do with um, magic and, and whatnot. It is dark, but it also deals with a lot of modern themes like um, you know, racism and uh, transgender uh, issues and, and all kinds of those wonderful things. And they have just a, a lovely take on it. And the language and dialogue is actually really impressive. Um, but it is a guilty pleasure. So don't go into it thinking you're going to be you know, revolutionized in some way. 
All right. So um, I also want to say one thing about the black hole. One part of a black hole is called the relativistic jets, which I really love. It feels like a New York street gang that's been reading Derrida and Foucault and stuff, and they're not even really sure they're jets anymore. Um, uh, the um, I wanted to just quickly endorse the work of some of these scenery-chewing uh, actors who are on Barry and point out other places you can see them. So um, Glenn Fleshler, who plays uh, Goran, the, the boss of the, of the Chechens for a while, uh, also is doing a fabulous turn right now as Bobby Axelrod's lawyer uh, on Billions. Uh, it's a pretty different role, but no less ruthless uh, than Goran, although this guy, you don't get to see him uh, walk really fast on a treadmill while smoking a cigar, which is something that Goran uh, will occasionally do. Um, Stephen Root, who plays Fuchs, uh, the Fagin-like uh, assassin recruiter and manager, uh, you can see him everywhere. There, I don't think there's a character actor who books as much work as Stephen Root. He is absolutely everywhere. Most people probably know him from Office Space, uh, although he's in, been, a, been on a bunch of other uh, popular TV series. I'll just cite his work in, uh, he's also in True Blood. I would cite his work in Justified, uh, which is an amazing series, and a smaller role on Boardwalk Empire, where he's just a spectacular. Who did he play in that? He played like this guy, he sort of was sit in a room kind of just commenting on stuff. I forget what the role was called, or but you know, it was just kind of this strange guy who seemed to know stuff about, uh, about what was going on. Um, in Darcy Carton, uh, who plays, uh, I think, Natalie, uh, one of the people in the acting cl class, the entirely 100% narcissistic acting class, uh, most people who watch The Good Place adore her as Janet, a kind of artificial uh, intelligence in heaven. Uh, I don't know how to describe what Janet is. And then I will just quickly tell you, I can't endorse this exactly, but Sarah Goldberg, who plays Sally, can be seen on uh, April 18th at the Barrow Street Theater in New York, a short walk from Lucky Lee's, not that you're going to go there, uh, in Nassim, which is this show at Barrow Street where a different actor takes the stage every night and does kind of a, a monologue that's completely spontaneous. Uh, I don't. I haven't seen it. I don't quite understand how it works. But it's a different actor every night, including some very high-end actors. So if you're if you're mad about Sally, you can go have a little FaceTime with her uh, at Barrow Street. Henry Winkler. Henry is there Henry Winkler? Is he doing one? No, no, no. no but he's in the show. We he's didn't even show. mention. Oh, yeah. that. No, you mentioned it. We mentioned oh, it. Yeah, okay. we did.